I invite you to take your copy of God's Word out. If you'll turn with me to the book of Acts, as we continue our study here, we're going to be reading chapter 8, and we're reading verses 1 uh, through 25. We are not going to nearly deal with that much scripture this morning, but I want to set the entire stage for you of the account of Philip and uh, the people of Samaria, and particularly Simon the sorcerer, the former sorcerer. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and following, uh, the New King James Version, God's Word declares, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of, to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. There was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city, and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him, because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized, then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had, not, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God would be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, that perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Lord God, we do thank you again the opportunity now to look in your word. And we know this is a sober time, a serious time. And we pray that you might uh, sharpen us this morning. We might not only keep our minds engaged and focused upon your truth, but that your spirit might contend with us in our heart in our spirit, for that truth. Lord, we um, pray that you might work in us in such a fashion that we will be more like your Son, having spent this time in your Word, that we will be rebuked and corrected where that is necessary by your Word. That we'll be instructed in righteousness, perfected by your word where that is required. And Lord, that we might trust in you fully this hour. To guard this time from error, opinion, and the philosophies of this world. Not only in what is said, but in the manner in which we receive it. You might guard us from trusting in ourselves and trust rather in your Spirit's discernment to lead us into truth, to illuminate us, 
into your truth. Lord, we thank you that you have promised that where people ask for wisdom that you freely give it. And we do desire it this morning. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last couple of weeks we've taken some time to look at what persecution is and is not. It is not something to be avoided, but something to be encountered. Not something to be prayed against, but rather to be praying for those that are persecuting us. That we willingly surrender comfort for the value of suffering for his name. And this has been a theme that we have carried through much of the book of Acts already. And we saw it begin really just with Peter and John. We saw it then expand to all the apostles, and we've seen it the last couple of weeks now um, become evident to expand to the whole church, that the whole church is now being confronted with a choice. You're either going to stand for what you believe in and perish, be imprisoned, or lose your new home. Or you're going to compromise. This persecution, this trial that came upon the church was very purposeful and accomplished much for the kingdom of God. And I'm convinced that nearly every act of violence against the church has done similarly over the centuries. We talked last week about the fact that our persecution in this country is of an entirely different nature and is producing entirely a different result. We looked at one of the values of persecution was the purification of the church. They were able to discern who are the real thing and who aren't. Who's the real deal? Who are really followers of Jesus Christ and who are just giving lip service to it for whatever reasons? We've seen in the book of Acts other instances in which men gave lip service and wanted to be held in high esteem in the church and were willing to lie to make that happen. And God struck them dead. Whoa. The Anais and Sapphira come in and, and say, oh yeah, we're going to do this for the church and, uh, and don't you all want to applaud us? And, and Peter says, well, you're not lying to us, you're lying to God. And he's going to take care of you right now. Boom. Fear fell upon all the church, and and that fear is not fearfulness of being a Christian, but of a fear of not being the real deal. And there should be a, a genuine fearfulness on us where we constantly evaluate our motives, our words, our lives, our spirits, and say, am I the real deal, or am I simply portraying myself as something I'm not? And that is one of the value of persecution, historically, particularly violent persecution against the church. Of the nature that Saul is is instigating here, of wreaking havoc on the church by putting them in prison, calling for their deaths. And then he's going to spread this a little bit later on into Damascus. We contrasted that to this new kind of persecution that Daniel says is coming and it's a whole different nature, and its purpose um, uh, is not to destroy the church, but to put the church to sleep. To just make them irrelevant. Satan has attempted to destroy the church um, over and over and over again throughout the centuries, uh, some in very organized fashion, some uh, less seemingly so. Um, but uh, in our situation, uh, we have a persecution, a, a, a time of tribulation uh, that essentially is making the church irrelevant because the church is no longer any different than the world. For we have been worn out. We have simply uh, been worn down to the fact that there is nothing jaggedy about us in the community anymore. That instead of rubbing people the wrong way, we're not even noticed in the society And in this respect, I 
I have a, a lot of appreciation for our Amish and Mennonite brethren who, who make it a point of fa- a point of life and of faith to be distinct in their appearance and in their participation in society. They want to maintain a distinction. But there is a, another facet of the work of the church that needs to be carefully uh, brought in. And we want to discuss that this morning. That it could easily, we could want to be so distinct from the church, from the world as a church, that we stop engaging the world as a church. And striking that balance is critical. But I want to share with you that last week's message that went 66 minutes, I was told about the sound people and podcast people. Um, and I'm getting longer and longer. They said the older I'm getting. So I'm going to try this morning. In fact, I've broken this message down in half so that you guys can enjoy it for two weeks. Um, the, the more critical thing right now is you realize that we have been worn down. That there is n- hardly anything about you that is any different from anyone out there. And that is Satan's tactic in our day. And has been uh, for at least a hundred years. And so we look at the church, and, and, and by the way, it's not just because I'm an old guy and this generation. In fact, if you look back and you read some of these guys that wrote in the late 1800s, in the early 1900s, and the mid-1900s, and you look at them, they look back over their ministry years, and they look back to when they were young pastors and, and what society is like. Their statement over and over again is, we have, we're lost. We're lost as a culture. We have degraded and that was people that were writing in the late 1800s about the degradation of the church becoming more and more like the world. In the 1940s and 50s and, and even 30s, writing about how we have degraded and we're more like the world than Christ. And could you imagine if those guys showed up today? They would run out of this room screaming. Because not only do we have some of the church infiltrating the, or some of the world infiltrating the church, we have ourselves given over to it in large measures. So this is the greater danger, but there is also another way that we can become irrelevant in the world. One is by living like them, looking like them, sounding like them. We talked about that the last two weeks. The other one is that we don't engage them. And these are very easily seen as, uh, as twins of the irrelevancy of the church. And so not only do we have the tribulation that came upon the early church as a means of purifying it and setting it aside that people knew who they were. They were different. They were of the way. They walked this way. We're all walking this way. They're walking that way. They're of the way. A different way of life than us. We recognize them. We can wreak havoc on them. We can go house to house and arrest them. We can identify them. They are easily identified. They're being drug off to prison. Ready for trial and stoning. But even as that was going on, there was a secondary aspect of this violent persecution and that is that the men went and women were scattered everywhere, and wherever they went, they shared the gospel. And we come into the account of Philip, one of the seven, the second of the seven, uh, in the list even, when we go back to the seven men that we often associate with deacons, but we have seven men who, if you'll recall, they were selected for one job, and that job was to make sure that everyone in the church was properly cared for out of the resources that belong to the church. So as people gave money to the church and gave other resources to the church to make sure that other people's needs were met, the apostles didn't want to take that responsibility on themselves. So they said, you choose from among yourselves, seven men will give this responsibility over to them, and they will make sure that there is a fairness in how uh, the widows are cared for and orphans and things like that. That, that aspect of the church we're going to divorce ourselves from, which is really important when we get down to the later parts of this account here in Acts, 
with Simon the Sorcerer and Peter. When Peter comes in, we're going to look at more of that next week, I believe. Uh, I don't think I'll get there this week. And so we find this, this uh, 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 seven selected, and we've already lost one of the seven. Stephen, one of the seven, and we think, well, his job wasn't to go out there and evangelize the Hellenistic synagogues. His job was to take care of the distribution of things for the people within the church. But we don't understand the nature of the selection process, apparently, because they weren't selected just to do this job. They are selected as men who are full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, Full and we're qualified to do this and to be of that character, of that quality, uh, would make you one who would share Christ wherever you go. And these seven, who are now down to six, there are seven of them selected. One has just been slaughtered because of his evangelistic efforts into the Greek synagogues. The synagogues of the freedmen, it says. Um, And and that cost him his life, but a very powerful testimony was shared. And among those who heard it and saw it was a guy named Saul who would become Paul, the great missionary. The second one of these seven, remember their job. You and I would say this is their job description, and we would put them in this really neat, tight box. Say, that's all they have to do, and they're pleasing God in the church. No. They saw that as a ministry in the church but not as the definition of their fullness of their walk with God. And the indication is that these men were strong evangelism-focused men. Perhaps even as much or more so than the apostles. They say, wait a minute, they they, they are more than the apostles in their in their evangelism? I would contend with you, yes, because one of the first things we find about Stephen is that he looked around and said, there's a whole group of people here that we're not reaching at all. I've got to go talk to them. And the indication we have is that he was the evangelist in the freedmen synagogues. And, and he was the only one from what we know. There's going to be another one and he's going to have the same kind of problems. Is going to try to go to those, that same Greek group and get into and have some issues that are going to come up in a little bit. Um, that, that was just a very resistant group, but Stephen wanted to reach him. And now we come into Philip, and let me share with you how he's described later on in the Book of Acts. He's called two things: one of the seven. That's one of the titles he's going to be communicated as one of the seven. And then he's also be called. The evangelist. The evangelist Philip, one of the seven. You see, we have taken the ministry of evangelist and made it something different than I believe God's word portrays it as. Um, We have taken it out of the realm of the laity of the church and we've made it... uh, a, a role that is similar and, and very pastoral, very uh, that we're going to, you have to have this theological training, that you have to have all of uh, uh, the reverence, the, the titles and, and ideas of uh, the pastoral role, and we have called that the evangelist. And that really is something of a modern, more modern movement, where we have taken the role of the gift of evangelism and we have put it into the arena of the professional servant of God. And this goes back to Billy Sunday, to D.L. Moody, um, and, and back into our more modern, but, but to you, probably ancient history, but, but uh, these guys in our modern era, uh, we called evangelism. They made a living from it. And, and certainly that is very possible that Philip was doing that, but he was one of the seven. He was really one of among you people. He was not among the apostles. He's not one of the twelve. He was one of the seven that they voted from among themselves. These are the ones that we are going to set forth who are going to take on the responsibility of making sure that the, that the material things of the church are cared for and done well and, 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 and in a God-glorifying way that, that resolves 
all these uh, conflicts that were arising over whether it was being done fairly or well. And, and so here we have now the second of these seven. And we find that, that evangelism is his heart. It is his gift. He is going to be called the evangelist. And we have very few people called that in the Bible. I would challenge you to see how many others are ever entitled that way. Ephesians tells us that God has given us certain individuals and, and, he, and he distinguishes pastor teachers from evangelists. That the evangelist is a separate entity from a pastor teacher. The Bible says not many of you be teachers, but it calls for all of us to share Christ with others. And so among the church, um, the expectation is that our evangelists they're not the twelve. Do the twelve do the work of evangelism? Yes. And I think that it's also important that we recognize Paul telling Timothy, you know, you need to do the work of evangelist. You gotta still do that work. We're not excluded from it. We're among the number that need to be called upon to do that work, certainly. But the idea that this title evangelist is limited to those in the professional clergy um, is really foreign to the Bible. Philip becomes the evangelist, but yet he, he lacks some authority. And that authority is to be of a pastoral nature. And I believe this is why we're going to find a distinction between men like Philip and guys like Paul who are going to be establishing churches. This is why we're going to have Stephen, or I'm sorry, not Stephen, uh, Peter and John following up on the work of Philip as we open the doors of faith to the regions beyond Judea. And so we come to Acts chapter 8, um, verse 5. And it says, Philip went down to the to a city, it says the city in the New King James, but it's also margin that, that it's a city, the city of Samaria. Um, many people believe that that is the capital city then of Samaria. But he went to the city. It's not a village. That word is used later on about the apostles and their traveling. Hit many of the villages. But he goes into the city of Samaria and he starts to preach Christ. And uh, he is out of Jerusalem, even though his responsibility is to care for them. He is traveling now, it says, down to the city of Samaria. Uh, that's because anytime you leave Jerusalem, you go downhill. So even though Samaria is north of Jerusalem, we would think, well, you're going up north, down south. Um, not in Israel. In Israel, if you leave Jerusalem, you're going down. doesn't matter whether you're going east, north, south, west. You're going downhill. Jerusalem sits on a mount. And so he went down the hill out of Jerusalem, went to Samaria. And we have him arriving there, and he's going to preach Christ. And, and we have wholesale conversion here in verse 6. Multitudes. With one accord, and that word keeps coming up when you refer to the church. With one accord, they're coming in there, and they they are going to listen to the things spoken of by by Philip. They're going to hear and see the miracles which he did. They're going to be described for us. He goes out with great power. He goes out with the gospel, and people responding uh, in multitudes. They're just running forward to respond to his call to trust in Christ Jesus as your Savior. And we might look at his response there in Samaria and contrast it to the response that Stephen got in the synagogue of the free men. Both of these men, evangelism was a priority. And both of these men's evangelism was effective. Don't get the idea that somehow Philip was successful and Stephen a failure. Both of these men's evangelism was powerful and effective. One to a resistant group who gnashed their teeth at him, drug him off to a court, and had him murdered. But yet, as a result of his testimony, we have not just a chapter in the Bible that we get to see how he portrayed or presented Christ to the men of Jerusalem, but we have many priests coming to Christ. We have God using his testimony as one of the prods in Saul's life. Isn't it hard to kick against those pricks? You keep, you're fighting against something that you know you're wrong and he's right. 
So let's not get the idea that because multitudes came to Christ through Philip and with Stephen, uh, we have our first martyr that one is successful and the other is not. For they both accomplished some powerful work of God uh, for the benefit of the church. And of course, as a result of what Stephen was doing, we're going to have the people scattered out of Jerusalem going every, of Stephen's martyrdom, we have people scattering out of Jerusalem. The word of God is going forth all over the Judea and Samaria. And now we have Philip taking the lead in a chief Samaritan city. We're not named for us, but the chief Samaritan city. And he's coming in and he's sharing Christ and a multitude with one accord come forward. And this is, a very powerful testimony that has to be addressed because this description, multitude with one accord, correlates almost perfectly with the Jerusalem initiation of the church back there at the day of Pentecost. So just as many came to Christ there on that one day, and we have thousands, here we have multitudes in Samaria, the chief Samaritan city, coming to Christ in one accord. They saw... And heard, they heard the message, they saw the miracles, and they're described for us here what he did. And, and you get done with the Gospels, you think there can't be an unclean spirit in a whole area after Jesus Christ was done. How can there be any more people that are lame or blind or anything? Um, but Christ only made one foray into Samaria. And it was a brief one. A Samaritan woman at the well engaged that one community Or I'm sorry, Philip arrives there and has this apostolic power, we call it that, not because it belonged just to the apostles, but to that period of time in the establishment of the church. Many were had demons cast out. Interesting, they always cried out with a loud voice. They always make a lot of noise, but they have no power Versus the man of God. And we in our age today have many unclean spirits that shout loud things. But that doesn't mean that they're right. Just because they're loud. Nor does it mean they have power or authority. Just because they're loud. Just because most people are listening to them rather than the truth doesn't make them right. And so they saw all this exercise the power of God. They responded by faith believing. And it says in verse 8, there was great joy in that city. The city was transformed. And instead of being a city of anger or or violence or or, uh, pride, it was a city of joy. And we have, in our, again, in our more modern eras, we have seen evidence of that. When we look at the Great Awakening, we look at some of the work of some of those men uh, that we can name as, as heroes of the faith in, in the period of the Great Revivals, where entire communities were, were so affected by the Gospel that uh, the policemen lost their jobs, essentially. There wasn't any reason to have a police force anymore, because people stopped breaking the law. And by the way, here's a little historical fact. The um, origin of barbershop quartets is directly linked to the Great Revivals. They were normally composed of former police officers who get together and form quartets and went around saying because they weren't needed in their communities anymore. That kind of transformation, not of just individuals and families, but of entire communities... It has been recorded. It has been evidenced, not just in that apostolic era, but but historically in this country, in England. We've seen this kind of, of conversion. And when you hear men of God uh, who in the 50s and 60s say, oh, we need revival in this land, we need revival in this land, what they were calling for was something that they had evidence of that it can happen, it has happened, we have seen it, we have have heard of it, it has occurred. 
Multitudes can get saved at once. We can't have entire communities coming to Christ. An entire city can be described as joyful. For it has occurred in this land at another time, back when the church was different. Back when the church was more like Christ than the world. Back when the Word of God was unchallenged. Not only by the church, but by society. Back when the church prayed. Back when the church was righteous. And here, the evangelist Philip goes out and has this great conversion and we come up against opposition very quickly. Um, so-called opposition. This is different opposition than what Stephen was up against. This was a guy who also claimed to have some power. And by the way, we are confronted with that all the time. You guys just don't know it. We are confronted with who has the greater power, God or the demonic. Who has the greater capacity? And we are confronted with it all the time. Your media confronts you with it constantly. As they belittle Christ and um, use his name in horrific ways and manners and the images of, of Christianity in 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 disgusting ways, they're challenging your God. Try and stop us. And we do almost nothing. Now, do we take up arms? No. Is Philip going to take up arms and cut down this one Simon? No. He is going to live the Christian life and testimony in front of them. And with all the power and all the authority that Simon appears to have, Simon knows that it's empty. (laughs) That most of this is just trickery. Most of this is just sleight of hand. Most of this is just linguistic gymnastics. It's empty. It's really void. It's powerless. But he doesn't want to let anyone know that because it's the basis of him being able to get his way around town. Everybody listens to him and, and, it, and, it kind of, and it makes him feel powerful and good. But he knows in his heart that it is empty. And so it says that in verse 9, there is this certain man, Simon, previously practiced sorcery in the city, astonished the people of Samaria, claiming he was someone great. Again, he had this claim. It was all sorcery or magic. It says they gave heed to him. They listened to him. From the least to the greatest. They even associated his power with divinity. This man has the power of God. This is, this is someone, we got to listen to this guy. And he had all this influence in Samaria. In comes Philip. Now there's immediate confrontation, right? Here's Philip. And everyone has great joy. They have no use for Simon. And so what we anticipate is that Simon is going to have some contention with him. But Simon knows something. Simon knows his is empty and void. His is sleight of hand. His is trickery. This guy is the real deal. He's showing up and and this guy has real power. He can transform lives. He can take those who are in misery and make them full of joy. And that's something his magic could never do. He could take sins and, and the guilt and despair that comes with them and by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ and trusting in them they are removed and we, and we find all of this evidence. In the end, it says Simon, verse 13, himself also believed. He didn't believe in himself. He knew what he was doing was empty. And the fact is is that all the noise the world makes about all the truth that they think that they have discovered, the fact in their life is that it has left them empty. 
Because there's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life. And that is Jesus Christ. And the sad thing is that we go out in the world and sin like them. We go out in the world looking like them. We go out in the world complaining like them. We go out in the world self-centered as them. We go out in the world miserable as them. We go out in the world destructive as them. And we wonder why there's no power in our churches. You've rejected it all. Because of this tribulation that has come upon the church that has made us irrelevant, our evangelism is shot. Because there's no power in our lives anymore. And if our lives aren't transformed, how can we ever think that we have any basis to go out there and invite anyone else to Christ? When there's no difference. We're as miserable as they are. We're as sinful as they are. We're as disgusting as they are. We're as self-oriented as they are. Really, we're just as pathetic. What Simon saw in Philip was This is the real deal. There is joy in this city. I couldn't bring that joy. You want to see what other religions bring to the cities? Go walk around the Middle East these days. See what Islam has done for them. See how happy they are. The only thing they ever seem to be able to celebrate is death. There's no joy there. Even among the Jews the other day, there wasn't joy. Simon saw what was going on. And he saw the conversion of these people. And he said, this is what I must believe. This is who I must follow. Now, Simon's faith is going to be weak. We're going to talk a lot more about this next week as we get into the baptism aspects that says that everyone's baptized, and, but they hadn't been baptized all the Holy Spirit. We're going to deal with that doctrinal issue and what it entails next week and why Peter and John needed to come and why there was a secondary work of laying on of hands and why it's not for this day. We're going to deal with those issues. I don't want to think I'm just going to blow through that and not address them. We're going to address those next week. I really want to jump ahead, though, and look at, at Simon's development, or lack thereof. And there's been a lot of discussion among the Christian community about Simon's eternal state. Is Simon a real Christian or not? We have the statement, God's word, Simon believed. And he was baptized. And then he started following Philip. And he was amazed watching Philip's miracles and the signs which were done. Can you imagine that the wizard of the community (laughs) is watching Philip and going, I don't know how he did that. Wait a minute, he didn't do that. It's all in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not to Philip's glory. It's all to God's glory. And it's not done by the power of Philip. It's not done by trickery. And if anyone can figure out trickery, it was Simon. This guy isn't tricking anyone. This is the real stuff. I wonder how many of us are ready to have our next convert follow us through life and watch our actions. Instead of having um, Bible classes or Bible studies and discipleship um, programs in the church, the church just says, um, if you led them to Christ, let them follow you around find out what Christians are supposed to be like. Let them be amazed by your life. Ooh, what are they going to find out when they follow you around? Follow you to work, follow you to your home, eat with you, be with you when you 
hit your thumb with that hammer. Hear what comes out of your mouth when you don't get your way. That was the discipleship program of the other church, by the way. You followed the ones who led you to Christ. And we see Paul exercising that when he comes to Christ and he comes and he hooks up with Barnabas and he just learns it all from Barnabas by being with Barnabas. Simon wants to learn what it's all about by just being with Philip. I'm going to follow you everywhere you go. I'm going to watch everything you do. I'm going to be your disciple. As you follow Christ, I'm going to follow you. I want to, I want to know it all. I don't want just this little Sunday drip, drip, drip. I want to know it all as quickly as I can. The only way to do that is come live with them. Let them walk in, with you side by side. And it says, Simon just followed Philip everywhere he went, just like the 12 followed Christ everywhere he went. The discipleship tool that the church doesn't use. Come follow me. That's what a disciple is, a follower. Come follow me. Oh, you're worried about your family? You're worried about your job? Okay, that's that's who you're following then. That's your priority. But you can come follow me. Christ made it very clear. Philip, he, we don't find him making this a requirement, but Simon says, I believe and I, I know I know deceit from truth. And what you're doing is the real thing. And I'm going to follow you. I want to see how this is done. I want to see what it means to believe in Christ. I'm going to follow you. And I would contend that while Simon is going to make a critical error, um, he's, he's done the right things. He begins this following of Christ by being baptized, just like everyone else in the city was being baptized. He, he begins that following of Christ. He wants to engage himself in it, and he's going to attach himself to the man of God. He's going to attach himself to Philip. He says, I'm going to follow you. I want to watch you. I'm going to really critically examine you. I've seen your public side. I want to see what you're always like. And I'm going to follow you. And, and, I, and at the end, he says he was amazed. <laughs> this is the real thing. I'm amazed at how you live. And I'm amazed at the power of God working through you. And I'm amazed at it all. The one who was the wizard who... Had everyone else fooled, was amazed, having walked with Philip. Of course, we're going to look at why Peter and John have to show up, but Simon makes a critical error. He comes and offers money to join the apostolic level of authority. His statement is really kind of, uh, many people have made it very wicked because of Peter's response. And and again, um, we can discuss motives. Peter examines him and, and really lays it out there where they would go. But his statement is, um, in verse 18, Simon saw it through laying out of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now let's just stop and take a step aside and let's just give Simon the benefit of the doubt a little bit here. Um, he's saying, uh, This is great. You guys showed up in the town and the Holy Spirit came with the Holy Spirit. That's power. That's incredible. And by the way, there's no indication here that Simon did not also receive the Holy Spirit. But he wants that apostolic authority that he could lay hands on people and give them the Holy Spirit. And in its nature, um, that's okay. That's a, I mean, he wants to disp- distribute the Holy Spirit to the church. Isn't that a great thing? Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that what Peter and John are doing? Yes. But he has introduced some of his old life. And he's trying to bring some of the old Simon into the life of the new Simon. And there's no place for it. 
There's no place for the old you in this new life. Even one little facet of the old you coming in and spiritualizing it. Just spiritualize it. And we're really, really good at this. What Simon just did, we are very good at. We rationalize bringing in parts of our old life and inserting them into this Christian life and making excuses for their presence there. And uh, because we have good motives, you know, all I want to do is share Christ. I've got to reach people this. And, and so, yeah, I'm doing this, but it's only because I, I want to accomplish this. As if God's way isn't good enough. Let's look at what he's asking for. I want to be able to have whoever I lay my hands on receive the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that be wonderful? He is requesting the authority to do that. We're going to talk about that more next week. That in and of itself sounds pretty good. But he has inserted one element of his old life. He's saying, how much? How much can I pay you? And you can give me this authority. How much, how much is it worth? Let me quantify it. Let me buy it from you. One element of his old life came into his desire to minister. And when I talk about tribulation being the world coming to the church and why have pastors through generations of pastoring been so distraught over that one description of the church that we are carnal worldly why does that bother them so much well i think peter's words are going to tell us just why here's how peter describes introducing one element of his old life into his new life One element. Peter says, your money perish with you. What? Let you and your money perish. You have brought one element from your old life. You've sought to rationalize its introduction into this new life and it brings death. To your new life. You and your money. Let your money perish with you. Let them perish together. You think that you can that the gift of God can be purchased with money? Where did money come into all of this? Where have you seen that you haven't seen in Philip's life? This is from your old life. How dare you bring that from your old life and bring it into your new life? Do you not understand that this is a gift of God? You are seeking to pervert the way of God. And when we begin to understand that we, when we take things out of our old life and put them smack into, even peripherally, but usually it's the core of our new life in Christ, we have done injury to the work of God in and through us. And not just minor injury. We have perverted it. We have made something that was great, good, and, and, and wonderful into something dark and twisted because we've taken of our old life and stuck it into this new one. And Peter says, may you and your money die. That you think you can buy the gift of God? Now remember, the way of the sorcerer is, I'll come and do sorcery for you, just pay me. That was the way it worked. He was, he was for hire. And by the way, this is nothing new. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember when Israel's coming out of the land? Who, one of the kings went and hired a prophet. I'm going to pay you big bucks. You go curse Israel. And by the way, when we get into Revelation, we're going to find that the way of Balaam is still in the church. How can you let that guy, you know, Balaam, that the donkey talked to him, Tried to curse Israel three times, instead he blessed them. And that's what Simon is trying to introduce in the church. We're doing this for money. Not that that goes on anywhere in any churches today, right? 
It's the gift of God. When you bring this element from your old life and you introduce it into this new life, you are perverting something that's wonderful. And then he goes on, verse 21 says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. And the response is repent and pray. When we stop having a desire to live for God and we start reverting back to our old ways because they're comfortable, because they, they, they satisfy the flesh to some degree, because we have no limited self-control, because walking in the Spirit is so difficult, and, and because we want to get along. I don't want, I don't want the discomfort of people not liking me. I don't want to get kicked out of my family. I don't want to miss out on, on whatever this world has to offer me, which is death and misery and destruction, but never the mind that. We're not thinking about that. Bible says you're asking to go back to death. You're wanting to go back to the way it was. You want to go back to misery and, and you're going to try to take this wonderful thing that God has done in your life, you're going to twist it and make it ugly again because you have sought to combine it with what was from your old life. And somehow you've rationalized it and God says, that's sickening, I hate that. That's what Israel did. We're going to serve God on Saturday at the synagogue and we're going to go serve the Baals up in the mountaintops the rest of the week. And God says, that's disgusting. I'm going to kill you all. And in come the Assyrians to destroy them. That's what God thinks of your plan of your life. I'm going to bring my old some of my old life and I'm not going to be completely transformed because that's kind of radical and there's death and the Bible says the response is your heart isn't right in the sight of God. There's something perverted in your heart if we don't want to live for God completely, utterly, entirely and do it God's way. There's something wrong in here. And Simon, while he wanted to do something, ultimately we might look at it and say, well, that's a good thing. You know, he wants to distribute the Holy Spirit. faster that can happen, the better, right? Not if we twist it by connecting something called filthy mammon to it. And whether it's that twisting or your own individual kind of twisting, maybe money isn't a big deal to you, but something else is. Oh, that we would not bring the old into the new. What does Jesus Christ says? What happens when you put new wine to old wineskins? They break. They perish. They're destroyed. The quickest way to destroy the work of God in your life is to bring elements of your old life and stick them back in. But fortunately for Simon, he wasn't completely condemned, was he? He was offered something. He was told, you got to correct this. you got to fix this in your life. You need to repent of this wrong-heartedness. you got to turn away from it. you got to change that in your life. And you have got to pray. And here's what you got to pray. You ready? So you're going to repent. That's a turn of heart of wickedness. Recognize that when you bring anything from your old life and stick it into your new life in Christ, that's wickedness. Repent of that. Turn away from that. And then it says, and pray. Here we go. Pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter recognized the origin of this is in his heart. That he still has that monetary aspect. He's still driven by some senses of greed, some some idea of of materialism, whatever. Uh, he's still got that in his heart that's got to be expunged. He says, oh, pray that God will forgive you for that. For thinking that you can bring some of the old you into this new you in Christ. You've been baptized. You made a public statement saying that when Christ died and was buried in Rosie, and we'll talk more about that next week, I think, and that you made that public declaration. You've been baptized. 
in addition to that, the evidence is that, that you've received the Holy Spirit. Where's the proof? And here Simon is wanting, in it, he really, his expression says that he wants to do something that we would think of is kind of like an evangelistic work. But he wants to do it his old way. Use his mechanizations. Use his means. Use his tools. And it's no different than our churches wanting to spread the gospel and to find out how they go to the marketing companies. How should we market our church? How do we market the gospel? Well, in the face of it, we say, well, they want to get the gospel out. Pastor, how can you fault them for that? I must fault them for that. Because it's wickedness to go to the world to find out how to do the work of God. That is wickedness. Yes, I understand. You just said you wanted to do the work of God, but you don't want to do it God's way. And that is wickedness. And the response of Peter is appropriate that to do God's work, man's way, is something we need to repent of. It's something we need to get out of our lives. It is wickedness. It is something that will bring death to us. And oh, that someone in leadership would have stood up in those churches and said, may the marketers and you perish. We have an old saying, perish the thought. This is where it comes from. How many of you have ever heard the old saying, perish the thought? That's because all of you, okay, a few of you have. Probably read it in Jane Austen or something. Perish the thought. It comes right out of this verse. May you and your thought, your thought to do it man's way, perish. May you die with that thought. Because we don't want it anywhere near us. And all that we would examine our lives and not only not want it in our church, but not want it in our homes and not want it in our personal lives, Lord, Get this junk out of me. Get it gone. I want to do your work, but I want to do it your way and not my way. And I am so sorry. And I want to turn away from all the times I did it my way instead of your way. That I brought the world's philosophies into my life, my relationships, my speech, my thoughts. Please, Please forgive me of not the actions of your heart, the thought. Forgive me of the thought of my heart. Because we don't address it there, it comes out fully born in actions as, as the book of James describes how, how it goes from being a temptation to being sin in that process that we allow it to, to grow and to come forth as action and then we are in sin. The Bible here, Peter says, hey, just the thought of that, um, I don't want to hear that again. May you and that thought perish. You and your money perish. I'd rather be in complete poverty than even contemplate where that's going to take us. Oh, that we would have that kind of arm-lengthedness that we want from our old persons. This is, that's who I was. And to bring anything of what I was into what I am in Christ is going to bring devastation. It's going to twist anything God could do in my life. And so I need to repent. I need to turn away from that. I need to pray for God's forgiveness. And and Simon says, oh, pray the Lord for me. And he didn't want any of that to happen. And the discussion is always, well, did he repent? Did he pray? I would contend that he did. I would contend that Simon, by Peter's strong verbiage, I mean, he gave this guy, just slapped him upside the head verbally, didn't he? I mean, come on. If you came up to me and said, Pastor, I want to do this, I said, May you and that thing die! (laughs) I'm leaving. That's how we would respond. Come on, be honest. Right? 
May you and your ways die. That you would think to insert something of the world into how we do the church. Shame on you. Oh, we would be out of here in a second. Not Simon. He hears and he recognizes it. And he recognizes it. And by the way, Peter's description of bitterness and iniquity. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit more next week. Um, he recognizes that. And he says, oh, pray for me. I've got a long ways to go. Pray for me. I don't want any of that to happen. I want to serve God. And I don't see anything here, the evidence that Simon wouldn't, didn't have a spirit of repentance and a spirit of desiring God's forgiveness. He didn't use the exact words that Peter says to use, but he, in his young faith, he did communicate uh, sorrowfulness. Oh, pray for me. Yes, and, and people said, oh, he just didn't want the bad things to happen to him. Well, of course not. Come on. Your kids come up to you crying because they don't want to get spanked. Why don't you expect baby Christians to act like that? Please don't spank me. I'm sorry. Don't spank me. Are you going to sit there and say, well, are you sorry that you did or are you sorry you're going to get spanked? We don't sit there and evaluate them because they can't, they can't distinguish that. Because they're the same. Doing bad meant getting spanked. They're so closely tied that you're asking a child to distinguish them. For Simon, this is closely tied. The condemnation is totally tied to the sin. To not want the condemnation is not want the sin. So my contention is that Simon is a great lesson for us as believers. Keep purified. Don't let any of that old man in your new life. Or it will bring death, it will bring misery, it will bring the twisting of God. Even if you're trying to do something good out of it in your mind, rationalizing it, it's evil, it's wickedness, it's, it's going to create bitterness in you. It's iniquity. You need to repent of it. But there is hope. For the one who has believed in God, has been baptized, and received the Holy Spirit, there is still hope. Turn from your sin. Just stop it. Turn from your sin. Pray for God's forgiveness and do what's right. I don't see a time period on here. It's time to do it now. Do it now before the perishing comes. Before the judgment of God comes on you like it came on Israel. Repent. Fix it. Turn from that way. Turn from that old life and remember that you are a new person in Christ. Live that way. This was the power of tribulation to purify the church and this is the power of this kind of a direct, violent, almost verbal abuse of Simon by Peter to shake him and realize don't ever anywhere in your life let the old man come into the new life. It's misery, death, bitterness, it's wickedness. Do God's work. Oh, do it. But do it God's way. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for a powerful statement by Peter. And Lord, we know that we are more like Simon than maybe anybody in the book of Acts we're going to encounter. Other than Ananias and Sapphira. And so, Lord, we need this kind of rebuke. We are so tempted to bring the world's ways into the doing of your work that it's almost impossible, it's, it's difficult for us to even distinguish it anymore. Lord, help us to know your word better, to know your ways better. Give us wisdom to discern where we have left off doing your work your way, where we have lost the power because we have introduced, oh, we've done more than, Lord, we've, we've given ourselves wholesale to the ways of men, even as we claim to do the work of God. And Lord, forgive us. 
We want to do it your way. We want to proclaim truth your way by your power and not of man, and not of the marketing strategies of this world. Lord, help us. And Lord, we do pray you might raise up in our number those like Philip and like Stephen who you have gifted to do the work of evangelism. But Lord, we also know that all of us are called to do that work. And whether that brings opposition like Stephen experienced or whether it brings multitudes like Philip experienced, Lord, we know that both are counted in your sight as successful. Lord, give us success in our evangelism. We know that for that to happen will require us to be more like Philip and less like Simon in his old ways. We thank you for this passage before us. Help us to live it out. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.